leaders listen to voices. They may not listen to one voice, they should, but they may not listen to one voice, but they will listen to many. So I think people underestimate that if you care about something, if you really truly care about something, there is no reason why you can't move it up the ladder. Hi, I'm Holly Ransom and welcome to Coffee Pods, a podcast devoted to fueling your difference. Here at Coffee Pods, we have a simple hypothesis that in the mere amount of time it takes to share a cup of coffee with someone, we can tap into a lifetime of experience. And that's exactly what we aim to do here at Coffee Pods, to give access to some incredible individuals who've marched the beat of their own drum and who are willing to share their advice, their highs, their lows, their insights, in order to help give each and every one of us the toolkit and the inspiration to fuel the difference that we're trying to make in our own lives, communities and organisations. Today's guest is the incredible Farah Muhammad, the CEO of the Malala Fund, an organisation that is all about how we get girls in secondary education, which about 130 million girls around the world right now aren't in. Farah's story itself is quite remarkable. Her family grew up in Uganda. When Farah was very young, Idi Amin came to power and her family had 90 days to flee the country. They arrived in Canada as refugees and have made a life for themselves there. It's part of what underpins Farah's passion for getting involved in the community of giving back, of helping others. And the story of how she's done that is quite remarkable. She's been everything from Director of Communications to the Deputy Prime Minister of Canada through to establishing the Girls 20, a subset of the G20 Forum that was all about how do we get young women involved in shaping the conversations that world leaders are having and making sure women's and girls' issues are on the central agenda. I think you're going to be absolutely inspired by... Farah's really considered perspective on what it takes to drive social change and her own journey of the resilience, uh, innovation and contribution that she's able to make. So without further ado, here's Farah Muhammad. Farah Muhammad, CEO of the Marla Fund, thank you so much for joining us on Coffee Pots. Holly, I'm sitting here with my flat white. Hey, although it is very Australian London, And I'm thrilled, uh, I'm thrilled to be here with you. Well, look, I want to go right back to the start before we get into the amazing work that you're doing at the moment. Now, it's been awesome actually getting to go and research because I've known you for a few years now, but getting to, to go and read about all the things you've done, I've learned entirely new things about your career and, and also uh, your family history. So if I'm right, you're of Indian heritage and you were born and raised in Uganda until 1972. And that's when Idi Amin ordered the expulsion of Indian Ugandans. And your family got 90 days to leave Uganda. And you found yourself uh, as refugees heading to Canada. I was really interested, firstly, I guess, how much you remember of that period of your life and how pivotal that was for sort of setting up your values and your view of the world. Well, you know, Holly, I think we were one of the lucky families, although it seems quite scary, 90 days. And I think for my parents, it really was. I'm lucky to not have remembered anything about that time. Um, And interestingly, as I got older, I wanted to know more. And I remember when I uh, said to my parents, I was in my first year of university at Queen's University in Canada. And I went to my parents and I said, well, you told me to join a group. And I joined a Ugandans peace group. And my parents looked at each other. I remember this moment. They looked at each other like, "Uh uh-oh, she doesn't really know anything about Uganda today or when she left it. So they sat me down and they told me about what had happened. And so I was in my first year of university before I really understood. Yeah. Before I really, really understood the circumstances under which my parents and, you know, 30,000 other uh, Ugandan Asians left 
and largely came to Canada or London or other places. So I'm lucky that I don't remember it, um, but I feel sad that I don't remember it because it is part of my history. And your second question, how pivotal of it was it? I think the fact that we ended up in Canada and my parents felt a sense of debt to this country, uh, they're both well-educated. I think they instilled in me to this day, the idea that we need to give back to Canada because mm. Canada became our new home. And so from a really young age, my sister and I would read the paper, we would volunteer, uh, we would uh, you know, figure out what was our role in our community. And my parents, who speak six and seven different languages, wow. actually, right, and my first language was, um, was um, Swahili. Uh, my parents decided only to speak English in the home because they wanted us to really, really feel comfortable in Canada. So, so I think that it was a, a big part of who I am. I just don't think I knew about it until a little later in life, which is uh, maybe a little bit embarrassing to admit, but I think that it's informed a lot of the decisions that I've taken, particularly in the last 15 years. So you kind of touched on it there. I was wondering, have you always believed from a really young age that ability of an individual to have an impact, to make a difference, to, to shape a community? Does that come from sort of that civic engagement that your parents encouraged in you? Yeah, I mean, I look, I think it can be good and bad, right? Leadership matters. And um, you can have people who can really have an amazing impact, a positive, positive impact. And that's the behavior that my parents modeled for us. So they did go out and they joined organizations that they knew nothing about because they knew it was important to belong. So my father's been working with heart and stroke in Canada for years. My mom's been working with different communities. She helps uh, people who need to go grocery shopping or go to the, you know, the mall for a walk. Like That's it's awesome. amazing what they've done. But I also have seen leadership from the other side, right? How one person can make a negative impact. So mm. if you think about Idi Amin and you think about the impact this man had. So when we talk about impact, we've got we've to make sure that we understand there can be good and there can be really bad. Um, and I love that that is something that I think about. I think about how do you ensure that as you're working with young people, for example, they see their power mm. and they, as they get into positions of power, you want to make sure that they're checking their own balances, right? They're trying to figure out what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad, what's acceptable behavior and what's not acceptable behavior. And a lot of that involves putting it, you know, aside your, your biases, whether mm. they're unconscious or conscious, we've all got biases. And when you're a leader, that's when you really have to check your biases, right? That's when you have to figure out how are you going to make your impact the best possible impact it can be. So I've always believed um, in the power of the individual because I've got two parents who modeled that behavior for me. Incredible, yeah. Our first days, yeah. So tell me, Master's, uh, Bachelor of Arts, Master's degree in Arts at, at uni, what was what was the game plan leaving university? What did you what did you <laughs> think you were gonna do? Where were your sights set on? Uh, how and how has that changed? I guess because I would describe you as a disruptor and an influencer, and someone who's done that to um, an extraordinary degree of, of impact over your career. I'm interested how maybe your outlook on the world and where to best influence things has changed since those early days at uni, perhaps when you were fresh, wide eyed, and bushy tailed looking at the world. Well, I'll take you back even further. I, okay. When I was a teenager, I was adamant that I would be a lawyer. And my parents kept saying, you're very argumentative. You should be. <laughs> and so they encouraged this behavior. I applied to three uh, schools in Canada. I got into all three, but I decided to go to Queen's because I thought that was my path 
to a legal career. So you go to Queens, uh, you do a political science degree. Yeah, it's a great school. I was on scholarship, so I was very fortunate also. Um, And then I got into Queens and I had taken a really, really boring, boring, boring politics course. I mean, it was terrible boring, like the kind of that you would contemplate maybe skipping class or sleeping through it, like (laughs) while you were in class. Um, But what it did was it ignited my ideas of um, how people organize and how change comes about. And also this was at the same time sort of colliding with my Uganda peace uh, group that I had joined. So I was understanding politics um, and the, the impact that politics could have on you. So my great plan was to go and, and go and be a lawyer. Anyway, I graduated um, from Queens with my bachelor's. I went off and had made a deal with my parents that if I ended up on the dean's honor list, they would pay for my trip around Europe. I'd pay half, they'd pay half. And uh, they, they kept their word. I traveled all around Europe. I went awesome. to Russia, where I did my undergrad uh, thesis was on detente. I went to Russia. I went to Poland. I, you know, I really, I came back. I ran out of money. I went to see our family in Switzerland. I uh, hung out there longer than I was probably welcome. <laughs> and uh, then, I, then I headed back home, and I was meant to have a job. Um, actually, I was meant to have a job in the accounting department of Tim Horton's Donuts. Oh, and really? they gave us, they gave my, yeah, they gave my job away. Canadian well, institution, that place. Yeah, that's right. Well, uh, and you know, I'd, I'd had accounting jobs and all these types of things. My father's an yeah. accountant. Anyway, I, I went back and, and they said, sorry, we've given your job away. And I was like, you can't give my job away. That's my job. And, um, you know, I fought it and they gave me a nice little package to go away. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> that argumentative straight worked well for you. Yeah. And so, so I found myself the summer of 93, uh, toward the end of the summer of the 93, and there was a big election on in Canada. It was 1993. We'd had a prime minister for nine years. Mm-hmm. There was Canada's first female prime minister who was not doing well. She was a conservative. I was brought up a liberal and believe in liberal politics and uh, philosophies. And so my father and my mother said, well, you don't have a job. It's the summer. There's a campaign on. Go volunteer. You're not sitting around wow. the house. You're not just going to hang out with your friends. And so I went and I interviewed all the, you know, trying to figure out, well, just because uh, my parents are a liberal doesn't mean I have to be a liberal kind of mentality. And so sure. I went and interviewed, I went and interviewed all the different candidates and I ended up with a liberal candidate, <laughs> oddly enough, uh, who then um, took me on as uh, her candidate's aide and I got amazing exposure. And wow. then I went to my master's. I worked for a year. Um, she didn't give me a job. I wrote her a letter and said, what do you mean you didn't give me a job? You made a big mistake. Truly, I wrote her a letter. And uh, her name was Patty Torsney. She was the youngest member of parliament after 21 years. This this uh, riding that she uh, ran in finally went liberal after 21 years. Wow. And so I wanted to be part of that movement. Anyway, she said, go get your master's and come and talk to me afterward. And I thank her for that because I think my master's has made a difference. Anyway, after I graduated, uh, Patty brought me up to Parliament Hill. I ended up working with her for uh, five years, ran two of her political campaigns. And uh, then I went on to work uh, for Anne McClellan, who was our Minister of Justice, who ended up being Health Minister and Deputy Prime Minister. So I don't regret uh, not being a lawyer uh, because I got to work at the hands of the Minister of Justice. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I still think at some point in my life, I would love to go and get a legal degree. I, I still believe that. I should do that. So maybe that's my retirement plan. <laughs> I love that. I'm, I'm fascinated by that time in politics and what you learn about leadership and change and influence. In terms of 
I guess, whether you're an optimist or a, a cynicist, because I've met a lot of people that have come out of politics quite cynical, um, but also how to actually influence an agenda and, and drive change. Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm an optimist. I, I think I was um, born an optimist to optimistic parents and live in a very optimistic world, though I've got a, a good dose of realism mm. in me, uh, which is, I think, has been uh, maybe cultivated or curated over the last uh, seven or eight years. You know, look, I the one thing I learned during a campaign, so it's different, right? When you're in a political campaign versus when you're in government and actually in the seat of power, what I learned during a political campaign was, I know it's a cliche, but every vote does matter. And mm-hmm. it doesn't matter if you're talking to somebody who's just gotten the right to vote or somebody who's been voting all of their life. You've got to figure out what what the issue is that's important to them and be authentic about it. And if you can't be authentic about it, then move on because it's not fair to the voter. Mm-hmm. So what I've seen is a lot of, a lot of um, people run and I, I, I do believe that people run for the right reason. I don't think it's easy to be a politician. I don't know why anybody would do it. They're not going to do it for money. Mm-hmm. They're not going to do it for amazing amounts of power because that power could be taken away as quickly as it's given, truly. Um, so I think that the one thing I did learn about political campaigns was the real importance about being authentic and understanding that you're running to represent those people. You're not running to be uh, a minister. You're not running to be the prime minister. You are running to be a member of parliament or a member of provincial parliament. And that's what you should run for. If your ambitions are, are bigger, that's great. But if you can't do the minimal job, then don't try to do it because that's what messes people up. Mm. Right. You, if, if you have politicians who go in, who make promises, who then don't do anything to keep those promises, that's what makes people cynical. Right. So you have to be truthful and yeah. people will vote for truth. And now in the, in the day and age that we're living in now, you can't get away with. Can I swear on this thing? Yeah, you can't totally. get away with bullshit. <laughs> you can't get away with bullshit. Right. You can't yeah. get away with trying to snow a, a voter. They'll call you on it and they've got access to all kinds of information and good for them. The power that we have as voters now, shame on us for not voting if you don't vote. Right. Mm. Because now you actually have the power to do something. So I think that the power has become a little more equal when it comes to people who are in power and people who have the ability to put people in power and take them out of power in a democratic situation. Um, you know, in terms of making change in government, wow, I, I feel so fortunate to have had those nine years. Um, they were tough. They were really tough years. Okay. I don't regret them, but I don't need to, yeah, I don't regret them, but I don't need to repeat them. Right. So, <laughs> um, but I, I learned how to navigate government. I learned how bills are made, how laws are passed, how committees work, how um, you can influence at the right time with the right person. I also learned how to brief someone. So if I can't brief someone in 15 minutes, I'm not ready to brief that person. I like that. Right. So yeah. I got, I got great skills out of this. You know, I, I didn't wake up, go to school and become a communicator, but now, you know, I'm able to communicate uh, in a way that I don't think I would have had had the opportunity or even have the skills if I wasn't spending my time in politics. I think this is, I think everybody, so rather than have people go military training, I think every young person before the age of 25 should have to give up a year and go work in some level of politics in their country. I really do. That'd be amazing. I'm interested on that. And I think we should pay for for them to do Right. Is any way of role modeling that out of curiosity? I think that's a really interesting idea. I don't think so. I, I, I think, no, I don't think so. Yeah. I've been, I've been on this, I've been on this bent for a little while. Um, just because I, I don't think that young people are choosing politics. 
No, uh, because they don't, they don't get a taste of it. And if you get a taste of politics, imagine you go in and you work for a minister of finance or you work for the minister of health and you understand how politics works. You come out, no matter what you choose to do, you are now in a position to better understand how to make change. Mm. Why wouldn't we do that? What's that going to cost us, right? Yeah. You, you, you say to every, and it, and it shouldn't just be people who go to uni. It should be people who go to college or don't go to college, people who, you know, by the time they're 25, should have given up one year paid in municipal, provincial, or federal politics. They get to pick and they get a serious job, not go get me coffee and file my papers, you know, go read this briefing note and tell me how I'm going to make this happen. And then we will get uh, a generation of young people who care about politics, who care about government, and who maybe even want to be part of it. I don't think that's a big investment to make. Oh, I imagine the return on the investment too. I mean, that would be in terms of civic engagement and everything like that and the ability to have that broader perspective, even if they go to investment banking or teaching or anything after that, the the way that they're making decisions and the systems head they've yeah. got on them would be remarkable. Yeah. And, and Holly, even if they don't go to work, if they stay yeah. home and they raise their kids, totally. like think about how engaged their children are. They're turning up to vote they're, they're reading they're the news, you know, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. I'm just going to ask on the, the legislative process and sort of the influence in decision-making, what do you think people underestimate the importance of and what do you think they overestimate the importance of in the, the political landscape? I feel like there's uh, a lot of smoke and mirrors when it comes to I guess who are looking at the political system and going, here's an issue I'm passionate about that I want to be able to drive change and to some degree I've got to engage the political process to do that. Um, what do you think yeah. they kind of overestimate the significance of and what do they not pay enough attention to that that's really a really important part of the process? Yeah, so I'll, I'll go with the what do they under underestimate. I think they underestimate the power of their voice and I think they underestimate the power of the ability to convene people around an issue, particularly uh, in today's world, right? You can start a, a petition that will make change from your living room, from your couch, um, so I think if you've got an issue that people care about, you need to put the time in to actually create a momentum around that because mm -hmm. leaders listen to voices. Mm -hmm. They may not listen to one voice. They should, but they may not listen to one voice, but they will listen to many. So I think people underestimate that if you care about something, if you really truly care about something, um, there is no reason why you can't move it up the ladder. You can do it first through networks and families and friends, but you live in a world now where you can uh, reach out to somebody you'll probably never meet in some corner of the world who may actually care about the same issue you do. So I think getting a momentum around an issue is something that you shouldn't underestimate. I think why people overestimate is the ability for governments to do things quickly. So people give up on their governments because they don't see change fast enough. And if you understand, and this is where I go back to people should understand how governance works or yeah. government works, is if you understand that, you know, you don't just say, I want this done. It has to go through proper lenses. It has to go through a financial lens, a legal lens, a human rights lens. Sometimes it has to go through a gender lens, which I hope more of happens. Mm. Then it's got to come to a committee. A minister has to sponsor it. It goes to a committee for review. It goes to the House for debate. It comes back to a committee. Then goes back to the House for a vote. Then goes to the Senate. I mean, these Not are many process. steps. And if you're yep. serious, yeah, and if, if you're serious about it, then fantastic, stick with it, because you have seen great things come out of this. Think about what happened in many countries around um, funding for AIDS, okay? It's a fantastic example. Many people didn't want to touch it. 
And people finally said, look at the economic impact of people who are affected with AIDS because the humanitarian one wasn't resonating enough, right? Then you get like the, you put the you put the humanitarian lens together with the financial lens. Mm-hmm. You move that issue, and you continue to move it. Now, lots of governments have managed to find where they said they could not before funding for that particular issue. Mm-hmm. Same could be said about landmines. People cared about landmines. Same could be said about that. Pick your issue, and if you really care about it, drive it, but don't give up on it. Right? I mean. I, I say that, and I really now I'm thinking to myself, how do I get governments to get kids to go to work in? So, I mean, on my spare time, when I have some, now in this new job, I'm going to start thinking about that, and I'm calling you, Holly. We're oh, going to try to figure this awesome. out. Awesome. I told you, I can't wait right. to the next next chat we have about how yeah. to disrupt the world together. Um, I'm yeah. intrigued on the pick the issue thing. Was was that the moment that led to the, the pathway out of politics in terms of was it an opportunity to have a different role in influencing uh, an issue you were passionate about that led you to work in the social profit space. <laughs> so after nine years, I, you know, I um, was very fortunate, but also very tired. Uh, after yeah. nine years, I had I had just come out of working on the the nine eleven uh, post nine eleven stuff, and as a as a Muslim, I found it really hard uh, in that time. Yeah. So you know, I'd come through SARS, I'd come through working on uh, the youth crime bill in Canada. Uh, then we had not nine eleven, and my boss became the deputy prime minister. Um, and what got me to leave politics was I really believe that, um, you shouldn't stay in a place too long. And I didn't have any hangups or any ego that I was leaving the deputy prime minister's office. It wasn't the easiest decision. Most people thought I was crazy, uh, cause who leaves the seat of power, but I knew I wanted to do something different. I didn't want to go corporate because that's where most of my colleagues had gone and when I was in health, I'd met this fantastic woman. And this will tell you the power of mentorship, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, her name was Dr. Judith Shamian, and she was the head. She was Canada's head nurse, basically. Wow. She went on to, to run Canada's longest-serving home care organization. And she basically called me up and said, I want you to be my VP of communications and partnerships. You understand government. You understand uh, you know, how we can work as a community partner. And so I gave my notice, and I, I went to do that for four years. And so while it was sort of an extension of my time in health, it was working in a, in a in a field I knew nothing about. I mean, going to the social profit, not for profit, and I hate the word not for profit. I know you because, do. I wanted to you know, ask you about that. I'll, I'll digress and I'll say, you know, I don't say to people, I'm not brown, I'm not tall, I'm not a man. So why do I say I'm <laughs> not profit? Because in fact, I do generate a, a profit. It's a social profit. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I went there and it was an amazing opportunity to sort of see it from the other side because part of my portfolio was GR, mm. right? Part of my, my portfolio was to, was to work with government and, uh, and get some changes in and around some bills and some laws and, and secure some funding for some really amazing things we were doing. So, uh, it was a really nice exit. Uh, people often say those who leave politics either do really well or do really poorly. And it's in and around the idea that you don't have access to information, that your adrenaline has now sort of dried up, and I just didn't have that. I, I had the ability to sort of stay uh, in, in an area that I loved firmly with one foot and put the other foot in a new area. And so I, I had one of the best transitions, I think, uh, you can imagine, and I kept my network alive, right? I, mm. I think that's part of it as well. Is you make some amazing friends um, in politics, and, and I, I had a chance to sort of carry those, carry those with me. 
Now, if I'm right, the girls' 20 idea is an idea that you struck about 4 a.m. one night in the year that it was sort of coming into Canada hosting the G20, but I'm sure there's a, a bit more of a backstory to how it came to be. Um, can, talk to us about the origins of the Girls' 20 and the insight that you had that sort of informed that being the vehicle that you pursued to help empower women and girls. Yeah. You know, Holly, I wish I could tell you it was really, really complicated. I'll, I'll tell you a very uh, the simple the simple story. Belinda Stronach, who was a former cabinet minister in Canada, uh, and she is the uh, she was the heiress to Magna Auto Parts, decided that she wanted to start a foundation. And so she called me. I didn't really know Belinda during her political days. She called me and said, "I want to start a foundation." And I said, "I know nothing about running a foundation." She said, "Perfect." And so because um, she likes to do things differently. And so we started this foundation called the Belinda Stronach Foundation. And we decided that we were going to focus on three areas. And one of the areas was empowering girls. And we didn't want to duplicate the efforts that were already out there. We didn't want to compete with other people. We wanted to figure out what was the space where girls were not being considered. Yeah. And um, Belinda comes from the business world. I come from politics. Both of us thought that those were the areas where uh, women and girls could have a lot of power. And so it came together. Okay, let's find where the two meet. And the two meet in the G20. That is where they meet. You've got political people talking about the economic well-being of our world. And so um, we didn't actually come up with the G20 until some time ago. And that's that 4 4 a.m. thing. I struggled because when we decided that that was sort of the overlap we wanted to find – uh, and I wasn't allowed to duplicate anything or compete with anything. I was struggling. I was mm. really struggling to sort of figure out what could we do to have that those two things collide and create a space for women and girls. That's when I was reading uh, the local paper in, in Canada, and um, they were talking about the upcoming uh, G20 in Canada. And, of course, the story was so negative. How much money will the government spend? Why do we do this? Is there a voice for G20? And I'd gone to bed. I'd read the paper. I woke up literally at four in the morning and went, yeah, there's a space for, for the G20. It's called Girls 20. And so I went to Belinda and with this crazy idea, uh, you know, it was October or something, I think, September or October. And by next June, we had launched our very first global Girls 20, getting one girl from each G20 country. And with the express purpose of saying, look, let's come up with really tangible, practical, affordable solutions where you can empower women and girls so that they become a contributing factor to the GDP. This is not rocket science, Mm. right? Uh, If girls are educated and then the education turns into opportunity and the opportunity turns into some sort of workforce um, factor, then you've risen the GDP. And what is the job of the G20? Mm. The job of the G20 is to make sure the GDP is solid, that we're on a growth, not a decline, and to be inclusive. And so how much more inclusive can you be? Mm. Um, And so, you know, we had to sort of knock our head against the wall a few times, and then finally people got and got it and went, yeah, that makes sense. Um, And and so that's how Girls 20 came to be. And every year we sort of expanded what we did in terms of what we were doing for the girls. One year we expanded bringing Afghanistan, Pakistan, and the MENA region in, because how can you have a conversation about these regions and not put them at the table? Mm. Um, you know, I, I'll, I still remember really fondly when we came to Australia, and thank God we did, because I got to meet you and, and others, but standing on the stage, you know, standing on the stage at the Sydney Opera House, Holly, I, I could never imagine that uh, Farah Muhammad, who grew up in Burlington, Ontario, <laughs> would be standing on that stage one day, um, you know, being able to talk about something that I created. 
it's still to me, it's still to me an overwhelming idea because I just, I just knew that we had something there, but it, it, you know, you can do these things all kinds of places, but when you do this at the Sydney Opera House, are you kidding me? That's (laughs) when you sort of know. Yeah, it is. It was really awesome. Yeah. Yeah, it was really awesome. I have a couple of questions on the girls 20. Um, one part I'm intrigued by, I've heard you describe it as the first risk you ever took. And I wanted to understand a little bit more about that. Yeah. Well, um, risk is an interesting concept, right? Yeah. Uh, many of us think many of us think that we're risk averse, but then you think about what you do in your daily life and you probably are more uh, prone to risk than you think. Um, mm. So my risk was I was working with Belinda and she was a very generous employer um, partner and she... Um, you know, really gave me a lot of latitude. So after, I think it was four years with Belinda, when we set up the foundation, I said to her, I don't believe in checkbook philanthropy. And she said, perfect. And I said, and I also don't think that you should fund things in perpetuity. I think we should fund things and get them settled and get them ready for success. And then we should treat them as an incubated project and somebody else should take them. And so Girls 20 fell into that. So two years uh, after Girls 20 would been at the Belinda Stronic Foundation, it was time to make a decision as to who that was going to go to. And so it just, for me, it was something that I, I just, I'm so passionate about. I lived, yeah. breathed, and ate Girls 20. And so I went to Belinda and I said, so um, I think it's time. It's time for Girls 20 to go and be its own thing. She said, okay. And I said, and I think I need to take it. And wow. so she, um, yeah, so we, we signed an agreement where I, you know, literally handed over a dollar with a promise to not ask for any more money and that the idea was if it was a great idea, it would last. And if it wasn't, then it wouldn't. Um, and so it turned out to be a great idea and it lasted seven years and now it's in the hands of somebody else. But it was my biggest risk, Holly, because, you know, I had a stable job yeah. with a very high profile person. I was living in Canada, you know, well, and then all of a sudden I'm quitting my job, I'm taking my savings, I'm plopping it all into Girls 20, uh, you know, building a new website, all these things that you do as a startup, getting the legal stuff done, getting a charitable number, these things are very expensive and with no real guarantee that this was going to last. And so for me, um, it was the riskiest thing I'd ever done up until that point. Now you're now you're speaking to me and I'm sitting in London. But it was risky because it, it's really out of my character, right? I went to university. I went to get a job. I worked on Parliament Hill. I got recruited to another job. Uh, you know, going out on my own, not having a definite paycheck was probably not um, something you would describe me as somebody who would be uh, comfortable doing that. But Risk is a liberating thing, I'll tell you. It mm. is. It is. And the moment you find out that you are okay with risk, I think your personality t- changes. I think that you you walk a little taller. You might even speak a little louder. It's, Has it changed uh, your relationship with risk since then? Have you now are you now someone that more comfortably takes bets on yourself and and what you're doing? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And I think that's one of the things I would say to this generation coming up. Uh, you know, take the risk on yourself and then give yourself time to succeed. A lot of people succeed quickly and they want to close the door. I had tough days. Like I had days when I was like, oh my God, you know, how am I going to pay my staff? Uh, that's what I worried about the most is now you've called people into your own little orbit yeah. and you're responsible, right? And that was my risk. I mean, I dipped into my savings a little bit. That didn't, that didn't ask, you know, I didn't really concern me, but it was these people who were depending on me that, 
that kind of had me sleeping uh, very few hours and working many more. But now I'm so comfortable with the idea of, of taking a risk on myself and my abilities. Just piggybacking on that in a general sense, what do you think are some of the most important things you can do when you take a risk to support yourself in, in seeing it come off? Like what were some core building blocks you put around yourself in terms of mentors or even the way that you sought to build partnerships that you think helped set up the success that Girls 20 became? Yeah, so I think the number one thing was I actually didn't feel that I needed to plan every single thing out. I think when you take a risk, you try to plan as much as you can, but you have to be flexible. So I allowed myself a great degree of flexibility and a great degree of thinking about stuff in as a different way as possible. So somebody would come to me and say, what about this? And the instinct would normally be, well, it doesn't fit in my box. So no, I would take the time to say, okay, how is that going to fit in my box? And if not, then I would dismiss it. Mm -hmm. So I really, I took the chance to be a little bit more open and then you just nailed it. I surrounded myself with some of the most amazing individuals on my board, on my committees, in my relationships. Um, I, I was not shy to ask for help because I wasn't asking for help for myself. It's really easy to ask for help when you're doing it on behalf of millions of girls. And I reminded myself of that every day. And people mm. would jump at the chance to help, right? I mean, I also kind of think that because of the way that I was raised, I'm programmed to help people. You know, if, if somebody can, if somebody wants to ask me or not even have to ask me for some help, I'm happy to give that. And I was really glad to see that that came back to me when I needed it. But, you know, take the time. Um, confidence sometimes gets, it does get shaken from day to day or, you know, every once in a while I'd be freaking out. Um, but I wouldn't freak out on my own. I would freak out by calling, you know, either, well, you've met Lori. So Lori, yeah, yeah. Lori. she would you know, um, or in, in, you know, I met Carrie and she became my board chair or Jen yep. Sloan or Patty Torsten. Like my, my former bosses became people who not just invested in girls 20, they invested their time in Farah to make sure that I got mm. this right. And so, um, I wasn't shy to ask for help. And I think people are, I think people who sometimes go off on their own feel like they've got to do it on their own. And I think that's a recipe for disaster. I, I think that's, a it's, it's a shame because I do think that um, maybe I'm lucky. I don't think I am. I, I think it's because people are like this. People want to help. Yeah. Right. Um, despite the fact that it, it took us a while to get on this podcast, I was so eager to talk to you because I know you're one of those people and you did, right? I said, Holly, I need a great speaker in China. And what'd you do? You jumped on a plane and then rocked that room, <laughs> you rocked that room. Right. And, and that's what people want to do. I think if people have knowledge, they want to share it. it. Shouldn't be hard. It shouldn't be hard to ask for it. And it, it should be even easier to give it. Mm. I like the point asking for help and I think it also goes to, to pitching and negotiating and it kind of touches on something I want to talk to you about because I know one of the things you were so passionate about with the Girls 20 was the capability building of the next generation. Making sure it wasn't just about getting them together in a room and having a talk fest, it was actually how do we build the skills of these leaders to go back into their communities, influence, drive impact. Um, I, I guess touching on that next generation question, what what are the skills you think are the most important ones the next generation of leaders can be working on building and honing? So I, I have four. Uh, first of all, in particular for women, I think the ability to negotiate has got to top our tart. If we don't, if we don't help uh, teach, inspire, whatever the word is, girls and uh, young women to negotiate, I think that's a real loss. So number one is negotiation for me. Mm -hmm. Number two is strategic thinking. So, you know, we'd work with, uh, for example, um, 
Bain came in and they taught our delegates how to strategically think through a problem. So take youth unemployment, for example, and this is the one we did in Australia. Yep. Take youth unemployment and see how can you strategize down to, to finding what is it that you can work on. Um, the ability to strategize is something I think we should start teaching in high schools. If you can't strategize, you're not going to be able to run a business. You're not going to be able to run your team. Mm. Uh, it's such an important skill set. The third is communications. Um, we would be working with um, PR firm, uh, and they would come in. And, and before the delegates even came together as a group, they would have media training. They'd learn how to write a blog. They would do um, things like, um, you know, if you were going to write for Forbes, which many of them did, what would you write? Uh, so they really got an ability to hone their messages and figure out what do they want to say when they're sitting at a table with 20 other girls from around the world who are as smart or as driven or as ambitious as they are. Mm. And I think that was a huge skill. So being able to tell your story, you know, that we always used to say that elevator pitch. Yeah. Um, you know, elevator rides are getting shorter and shorter. So <laughs> you've got to be able to get right. Yeah. Um, so and then my and then my final one was I, I found it was really important to have them understand how to build a budget. Right. So we would ask them, we would ask them to go off after the summit and, and launch their own social profit venture. Uh, and we'd give them all kinds of help. But if you don't know how to negotiate, how are you going to get your partners? If you don't know how to communicate, how in the world are you going to tell your story? Mm. If you can't read or write a budget, good luck. Right. So, so these were the things that I found were really, really important. And, you know, with that, and maybe as a spinoff of that, came this confidence. Uh, so I think if you want to if you want to build confidence, you have to be really practical about how you're doing it, right? It's yeah. it, you can't say, saying to somebody, "Oh, you're great. Oh, you're fantastic. You'll do really well." Is nice, um, but you're going to build your inner confidence because you've got skills and you've got talents, and you're able to think on your feet or think for yourself. Mm. That's what's going to give young women confidence. If we're only ever just uh, giving awards and you know, we're in this, we're in this generation of everyone gets a trophy. Yeah. You know, I think, I think competition is great and losing is okay. Uh, <laughs> and you know, uh, but you got to fight for it. You, you got to fight for it. If you're going to fight for it, then you've got to get skills that are going to allow you to fight for it. Right. It's very simple. Goals. Yeah. And I want to pick up on the number two, because the strategic thinking side, I describe you as a serial disruptor and I'm always really impressed with how you've thought through and targeted your interventions and that it's one of the the things I, I follow most actively in, in everything you're doing is, wow, that's like even last year when you launched the, the women and girls stock on the, the TSX, um, I, I thought it was incredible to, to watch, wow, look at a totally different way of approaching a problem, catalyzing a conversation. I want to know how you innovate in the, and ideate. Like what what's your process? <laughs> how do you, you help yourself to come up with these ideas? I, you know, this is where I fall flat. I, I think I might be a little bit crazy. <laughs> I think that might be a little bit it. Every good person um, I don't think, is. <laughs> yeah, I don't think there. I don't think there's a bad idea. I really don't. So yesterday, I met with somebody from WaterAid mm -hmm. uh, at this dinner, and um, we were talking. about, I don't know how we got onto this, but they, basically, they do sanitation. So you know, we started talking about toilets, and then she told me there's this toilet exhibition exhibition in in London. And I said, oh well. A couple of years ago, when I was asked to do a, a TEDx talk, I told them I want to do it on sanitation sitting on a toilet. <laughs> and uh, most people would think that's weird, but I had just come out of foot surgery and I thought, I do want to do this. And I do want to do it on toilets and I can't stand for more than two minutes. So I think that my brain is wired to sort of look for solutions. Mm -hmm. I, think that's, I think that's how I ideate. 
I, I think I see an issue or a challenge or something I want to tackle. And then I kind of work backwards. So I, I go to how can you engage people? Mm. So I think sitting on the toilet on a stage in a TEDx talking about grabbing. sanitation <laughs> would engage people, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's, I think, how I ideate. When it comes to things like Girls 20 and now in my role with Malala, um, you know, I, I think the challenge for me will be there's a lot of stuff going on in this space now. Yeah. And um, I think one of the things that people can do uh, better is I go back to my roots of not duplicating and not overshadowing. Mm-hmm. What's the space people don't want to be in? And then how can you actually problem solve for that? So um, I ideate in the middle of the night. I ideate because I have great conversations with people and it sparks something. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I wish I could say that I I have some sort of master plan and but I just think it pops out. It, mm-hmm. it pops out of my head and, and sometimes it flies and sometimes it doesn't. I did make the mistake of um, during my master's, I would sit with my, I would sleep and there would be a tape recorder beside my bed. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. And so I'd get an idea from my, yeah, I, I found that I, I obviously don't sleep well, but I found that I would get ideas around my master's and I'd wake up and mumble into this tape recorder. And the next morning I'd wake up and that's what it was, mumbling. Mm. Right. So I, I stopped. I still try to record my thoughts in the middle of the night. And now, um, you know, I encourage people to do this. I have an app on my, my, my phone and I literally, when I get an idea, I toss it in there Yep. Uh, and then I come back to it later. But I, I try to keep my ideas uh, front and center. It's not like I have an idea every day, but yep. if it's an idea and, I, and here's the other thing is I don't think every idea you have, you have to do yourself. I think if you've got an idea, sort of like this, this woman from Waterade, I said, you guys, you know, she said, we should do that. I said, well, have at it. Go yeah, get your go CEO to sit on a toilet. And uh, so I think people should share their ideas. And I think when you share your ideas, your idea might be seen as something mm-hmm. by somebody else in a different lens. But uh, an idea is, is just an idea until it's executed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, um, so I, I really believe that people should share their ideas. And, and I think that's kind of it, – it breeds more ideas. It breeds more creative thinking. And just so people can grab it, is there a particular app you use for that note-taking or is it just a, a general note-taking app for your ideas? No, I use no, no, I use Wonderlist. Okay, cool. Uh, so I actually have this this thing called Wonderlist and it's uh, one of my tabs is called Ideas. Nice. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, and it goes across all my platforms. So no matter where I am and, and what I'm You're doing, connected to your ideas. All, yeah, and you know, Wonderlist was actually um, – uh, born of a conversation, I think it was uh, by a, 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 a man and a woman, a young young man and young woman, I think, if my, if my memory serves me correctly, uh, in Berlin, and they'd come up with this idea, and now it's like, a, it's everywhere. Wow. It's, and if you don't have it, you get it. You share lists. You, I will. You put in, yeah, no, get it, wonder list. Now, I wanted to touch on, you mentioned you're working with, as CEO of Malala Fund now, an organization inspired by the Nobel Peace Prize winner, and I, it's focused on really girls' education. So talk to us a little bit about what you're doing and, and why you're so passionate about the cause that the fund invests in. Yeah, so, you know, just by way of background, um, the world currently has 130 million girls out of school, 130 million girls out of school. Wow. And, um, you know, if you think about, demographics, people retiring, workforce. I know we're having a debate about how many jobs will exist. The reality is you can't actually afford to have 130 million girls not in school because if they're not in school, um, and I'm, we're talking about secondary school, we, we focus on secondary school. If they're not in school, you've basically literally cut off their opportunities. 
right? Just right there. You've cut off their opportunities. So whether it's in Nigeria, which is the, you know, richest country in Africa and has the highest number of girls at a school, which is appalling, right? Think about that. Richest country in Africa, highest number of girls at a school, or it's a place like my own country, Canada, where uh, maybe there are some girls in Aboriginal communities that are not going to school. We have to figure this out. So it's not, you know, people like to say it's cultural. Well, some of it's cultural, but some of it's teen pregnancy. Some of it is financial. Some of it is based on safety. So the Malala Fund um, really is promoting this idea that every girl, no matter where she lives in the world, should have access to safe and quality education for 12 years, at least for 12 years. And what does that mean? So we do this in three different areas. And this is why I really wanted to join the Malala Fund, because they're not just we're not just interested in, in talking to prime ministers and presidents. Yes, mm-hmm. we do that, because at that level, we sort of start to talk about the economics. We start to talk about health. We start to talk about all those things. We give them a plan, a blueprint for how they can change their laws. Amazing. How do they enforce their laws? You know, what does this mean for their for their budget in terms of, you know, we want them to spend at least 6% of their budget, for example, in India. They only spend 3.8% of their budget. You know, India's got some, it's not doing so badly. It should be spending more money. Mm. China also. Um, and so we do this high-level advocacy work. And then uh, we have a program called the Gulmakai Champions. When Malala was um, writing as a blogger in secret for uh, BBC, her pen name was Gulmakai. Mm-hmm. And so she created this thing called the Gulmakai Champions. And the Gulmakai Champions is a global network of activists who are changing things on the ground. So um, they will be uh, based in communities, have their own organizations, and be focused on education. And what they'll do is they will start to lobby uh, communities and the countries mm-hmm. at the grassroots level for that change. And we're seeing that work. And it's incredible, right? The power of, as we come back to our original conversation, or or the start of our conversation, is the the impact of an individual. So Malala and Zia were two activists, her father, were two activists that were starting to change what was happening in Pakistan Mm -hmm. in education. And so they believe that that is the secret sauce. And so we've seen some of the amazing action that's happening in Pakistan, in India, in Lebanon, where we're doing some work. Um, so they do that kind of stuff. And then the other things that we do is we are helping to build schools. We're not doing, we're not you know, we're careful. We're, we're not going to start building schools all over the world. That's not, that's not where our, uh, the best thing we can do, but certainly where there is a need and we can be partners, we mm-hmm. are doing that. We do a lot of training teachers, uh, supporting organizations that are training teachers, uh, supporting young women and girls to get into school. We're trying to figure out what we do in Mexico f- with Carlos Slim, for example. Mm-hmm. What do we do in China? You know, Malala has a, and you know this, uh, she has a, um, a very, very unique position. Yeah to be able to inspire young girls to want to go to school and make that change for themselves and hold to account leaders who should be understanding that it's in their best interest for those girls to go to school. So she's able to sort of resonate along the whole spectrum. Um, and then you've got Zia, her father, who's such a huge advocate for girls' education yeah. that fathers and 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 um, males are starting to look at yeah why am I not doing that so it's an amazing amazing confluence of factors and people and issues um, and it's it's I believe if you can work at the top level and you know at the grassroots level this is where the change is gonna is gonna happen when these things sort of start to meet in the middle um, but if you can influence change 
um, the way that Malala is mm. uh, and will continue to do, then I then I have to hope that in my, or at least in her lifetime, uh, we'll get those girls into school. I can't wait to watch what you're going to do with this organization. It, it's such an exciting purpose and premise. And it's horrifying. 130 million girls not in school is unbelievable to wrap your head around. You know, in, in, in yeah. 2017, we're still a long way off yeah. uh, equality of opportunity even in terms of setting girls up to have the future that, that their brothers would. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, a lot of this is also things like I just don't – I think sometimes people just don't – I hate to say it this way, but they just don't do the math, Holly. Mm-hmm. Like they're not – you know, it's – it's people like to say it's a cultural thing. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm Muslim. I'm a smiley. Going to school was a given. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, we can't just paint uh, factions of people in a particular religion saying that's just not in that religion. No, yeah. that's – that's unacceptable excuses. That's not the way it is. It, it takes motivation, leadership, political will, and money to get these girls in the school. And unless you have those things, uh, you know, shame on us, mm. right? Shame on us for not working on what I think is the biggest issue of our generation. Because you and I both know, if you don't go to school, if you don't have some sort of training, yeah. um, how are you going to do all the things that we need young people to do? Yeah. Um, and, and I'm actually one of those people who thinks that that's, you know, engaging young people is one of the smartest things governments can do because completely agree. talk about innovation, right? Everything we've been doing in the last 10 years has come from a young person. I'm not kidding. They take a look at Uber, take a look at Facebook, the way we communicate, take a look at all these different things that we're looking at. The, 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 the explosion of, um, how to raise money online, like all these things came from from younger generations. Mm. So, mm. Um, you know, that next girl sitting in the middle of nowhere who's not going to school right now could be the person who uh, cures cancer. How do we know? Now, I'm very mindful of your time. Do you have time for me to ask three more questions? Sure. I shouldn't stop. I shouldn't. I shouldn't give you such lengthy answers. Two yes, really quick. And I, there was a quote that I read that I really liked that you said, we do a good job of celebrating diversity. Now we have to figure out how to leverage it. And I wanted you to, to touch on that in, in the context of not just the work that you do with gender, but, but probably more broadly, um, where we're at in the conversation around trying to, to change that equality picture that we've frustratingly been working at with, uh, with little progress for some time. Yeah. I'm going to say something that's not very popular. Um, you know, for a while, diversity was... Um, the way that you looked. So the color, usually diversity was equated with color. Now diversity is equated with gender more. Um, but also now diversity is coming into, um, you know, sexual orientation, uh, gender, ethnicity, and guess what? Age, age is now uh, part of that diversity lens. Mm-hmm. And so I think we've, we've come a long way in terms of identifying uh, what diversity might include. Um, what I don't think we're doing is figuring out how to properly leverage it. And by that, I mean, don't just put somebody in a spot because they happen to have a particular body part <laughs> or they feel a certain way or they look a certain way. All of those things matter. But I'll tell you, the, the time that I'm most offended is when people say, hey, Farah, will you join our board? And I ask, why me? And they start to stutter a little bit because they're asking me because I am female. Mm-hmm. I am um, Indian heritage, African born. So I'm 
obviously a visible minority. Mm-hmm. I think they're starting to also ask me because I'm short. Maybe that's even my next. <laughs> my next. Um, but, you know, I, I want people to get more thoughtful about why they're asking. And I am seeing this more and more and more. So, you know, if somebody asks me to join a board and they haven't looked at my CV, I'm not going to even take that call. Because not only am I all those things, I actually am smart and I'm ambitious and I like to work hard. Um, And I'm not shy to say that because I think it's humility is great. But if you're going to join a board, you're going to be asked to do a lot of stuff. So you better have what it takes or you shouldn't be joining that board because you're not creating the space for the next person. So I want us to be thoughtful in terms of how are we leveraging people's Mm -hmm. uniqueness and, and, you know, we used to use this word when we talked about diversity, we talked about differences, mm. which is terrible because it divides us, right? I want to be unique. I am unique. Every single one of us is unique. Um, the fact that I'm Canadian living in London is, is opening up doors. Yeah, <laughs> yeah is, is opening doors for me, right? So we used to have a really streamlined version of what did diversity look like. Then we switched the language and we started saying it's politically incorrect to say diversity. Let's talk about inclusion. Um, and I, I think we're just get so messed up in the words that we're forgetting to actually peek beneath the covers yeah, the and say, okay, yeah. And, and stop looking at people. You know, I, if one more person says, oh, you're very young to be doing that job. I'm like, oh, well, thank you very much for the compliment. Um, but you know, I, I, I just, it just bothers me that we're not really digging deep when it comes into people's individualism mm. and celebrating that person's path and for what it can bring you. Um, and I, I take it right back to, I don't know how much more we have to hear about women not being on boards. Yeah. We know what the problem is. We have a solution. Um, it's not to get every single brown woman on a board in the next 20 years or the next Asian person or whatever. We really have to be smart about this or the unintended consequences are going to be pretty bad. Yeah. I fully agree. Two final questions I wanted to ask you at close. For those people out there listening and and perhaps particularly young people um, who aspire to be able to have impact in the world, to be able to lead change and and do the sorts of things that you have been able to do, what's your best advice as to the first step they can take after listening to this today? Well, I would say be engaged for the love of God. I mean, pick something that you care about and just get in there. You know, don't be a, be a, a spectator in your own life, in your own community, in your own country. You want to see change? You got to make it happen. It's as simple as that for me. The spectator sport when it comes to civic engagement or politics or uh, community engagement is is a thing of the past. You want to see it? Get busy, right? Pick an issue. Yeah. No, seriously, I'm I'm really tired. Yeah, I'm really tired of people saying to me, well, I don't know what to do. Well, there's like a thousand ways you can get engaged. You know, and if you don't like politics, then go put your name on a ballot or go put a sign on a lawn or mm. go knock on someone's door or I don't care what you do, but stop whining. Like I, that's the one thing I don't have any patience for. Yeah. Right. There's, there are, if you whine to me about something, I, I will literally say to you, and so how are you going to change that? And if they don't answer, then that conversation is probably over. Yeah. Likely. <laughs> it's like right? waiting for the perfect path to emerge. And in the absence of that, we're just sitting there kind of twiddling our thumbs, you know, not going to do anything. Yeah, And I think that's lazy. That's lazy. That's not who I surround myself with. I know there are a lot of people who just don't give a shit, but then don't complain to me. Like if you just don't give a shit enough to do something about whatever is happening in your own backyard, then I'm not the person you want to talk to. Mm. And certainly I'm not the person you want to work with. And, And this might overlap with the final question I want to ask, but for those listening, what's the call to action? 
For the Malala Fund or for life? Or... For, for life, but you can give a, a call out to the fund too if you'd like. <laughs> no, I think, look, I, I, th- I think the call to action really is we're living in really, really interesting, and by that I mean confusing times. Yeah. Um, and I do think that it can be overwhelming and people can feel a little bit distraught. Um, but I, I want people to sort of have this understanding that the world ebbs and flows and we're in an interesting time now and out of confusion and chaos can often come really amazing clarity Mm. and action. And so I would just want people to say, I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to get disheartened. I am going to figure out what is my contribution and then work through the chaos and the confusion, figure out what your contribution is and just get it done. I mean, we are, we are also living in a time of great opportunity, Mm. right? Um, and I think sometimes you, you can get lost in that. So I'm not sure if it's a call to action or if it's just a, you know, I think about my 10 year old niece and, and how plugged in she is into politics already. Awesome. Um, I love hearing that. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, and, and I think about if a 10-year-old girl can be this plugged in, then why can't the rest of us do it with some optimism? I think the world needs a lot more optimism in the face of real negativity. I and that. I would ask people, you know, the last thing I would say is I would ask people to try not to be so judgmental mm. about people. You know, if we, could put a, if we could put aside being judgmental and critical of people because you probably have no idea what they've been through. Uh, That might make the world a little better place. I love that. That's great advice and a great call to action. Uh, Farah, I can't thank you enough for joining us. You're one of my biggest inspirations. I admire you so deeply, both for the the breadth of what you've done, but uh, for the manner in which you've gone about doing it and your conviction and your passion um, and the way that you build relationships and are so purpose-driven in everything that you have done over the course of your career. So thank you so much for carving out the time and, and so generously sharing today. Thank you, Holly. And you know that I um, I think if there was a Holly Ransom fan club, I'd either want to be chair or president. Uh, <laughs> That's very generous. I, I, know, I know from the time, the moment that I met you, that I really liked you and you, you have such incredible energy and ambition and you care, like you're, you're one of the most thoughtful people I know. And I think that's really rare. I think that combination is really, really rare. So Thank you very um, much. no matter what you, no matter what you end up doing in, in life, you know, that I'm, I'm right there cheering you on and happy to help in any way, shape or form I can. You're the best. And let's try to figure out a time to, no, I'm not the best. I, I really do think that people need to invest in superstars like you. And if we don't, then it's to our detriment. So thank you for having me on. And I'm looking forward to our next collaboration, no matter where and when it might be. Bring it on. Thank you, Farah. Thanks for listening. I hope you feel inspired and have some practical ideas for how you can go and fuel the difference you want to see in your life, organization, or community. If that's a yes, please take a moment to send us feedback. Shoot me a tweet at Holly Ransom. Leave a review for this coffee pod or head to www.coffeepodswithholly.com and send in your questions and suggestions for future coffee pods. But for now, until our next coffee break, I've been Holly Ransom. Thanks for fueling your difference with me.